Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. Well, good morning, Calvary. Hey, so glad to see you today. Grab your Bibles with me, if you would, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be, whether you have it in a print or a digital form. Welcome those of you here in the room today. Maybe you're joining us in Auditorium 2, or maybe you're coming to us by way of television or online or by way of the podcast. Just so honored that you are here with us. Hey, while you're turning there, this Wednesday night is our first Wednesday. So not only is it the first Wednesday of the month, but for us, when we have a first Wednesday, we have a special service on that Wednesday night. It's going to be here at 7 o'clock, and it gives us an opportunity to do some things that we can't always do in this service, in this setting, kind of with our time constraints. So we spend a little bit more time uh, in worship together. We'll look at God's word, and then we take some time very deliberately to pray together, to kind of seek the Lord together, and uh, believe that as we kind of look to him, he's at work in our lives through those times. We're going to talk Wednesday night about spiritual hunger And if you go, I I don't know what you mean by that, then I hope you'll be here Wednesday night. Or if you say, I wish I had more of a a hunger or desire for the things of God in my life, but I don't, then, then I hope you're here Wednesday night. And if you say, I'm spiritual hungry, then you should be here Wednesday night. And uh, really excited. Our CSM ministries for our middle school and high school students will be meeting as well. We also have some really cool stuff planned for our kids, both uh, early childhood and elementary. And uh, so here's the thing that I know. I know that any time in my life when I've carved some time out to specifically seek God or to give him an opportunity to work in my life, I have never regretted it. Anybody? (laughs) Like, and it costs you something. Like, it may, it may that, that's an evening that you go, I, I, I didn't want to fill anything that evening. Or it might, it might push bedtime back a little bit. Or it might not be in your plans. But I just want to encourage you that when you put yourself in a place to be in the presence of God, it always, always, always changes our lives for the better. So I hope you'll be here to join us Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. Would love for you to be here. We're working our way through the gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. And uh, today we're going to start a new series that we're calling Flip the Script. And in particular, we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 5, look at some lessons that we can learn from the Sermon on the Mount. That that term, Flip the Script, if if you look for a definition for it, it means to reverse the usual or existing positions in a situation. Like it has this idea, it's kind of an idiom, it's kind of a term that communicates when something really changes, to do something unexpected or revolutionary. And when you read the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that's really important to see about what Jesus says and about what he does is he takes the conventional wisdom of his day and even a lot of the cultural wisdom of our day and time, and he flips it. He he, he does what's unexpected. In many ways, it was revolutionary. So as we look at Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, as we look at this passage of Scripture that we call the Sermon on the Mount, we are truly going to watch as Jesus flips the script. He is going to show us things that we may not have seen, that we may not have understood. And there will be this light bulb moment where we go, oh, that's how you do it. Or I didn't know you could do it that way. You ever been working on a project? And you're like, I'm just not sure how to do this. I'm not sure how to fix this thing. And I think I've talked before about the the power of YouTube in your pocket. Anybody else? I've been under a lawnmower. 
I've been staring at a wall. Most recently, I was under a sink. And I'm going, I don't know how to do this, but I bet the almighty YouTube does. And I pulled it out, and I searched, and there was this light bulb moment where I went, oh, that's, oh, that's how it works. That's how you do That's what I need to do. That's the tool I need to have. That's how I need to approach it. And my prayer is that as we go through this revolutionary teaching of Jesus, that you won't just hear the same old Sermon on the Mount, that you will instead have Jesus do something in your life that helps you to see things in a whole new way. Let's jump right in. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach, and he said, this is the setup to the Sermon on the Mount. Who are the crowds? Well, we've already been walking through certain passages in Matthew, and we we got to where Jesus preaches his first sermon, and when he did, we heard him talk about the kingdom of God, and as you read at the end of Matthew chapter 4, you see that people were coming from all over. They were coming from that whole region because they wanted to come and hear the things that Jesus had to say, and it says that he went up on a mountainside to teach them as he's teaching them that the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, this is really significant now, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we, we looked at this analogy, but I kind of, if you don't mind, I want to go back because it helped me to kind of know how to understand a little bit more the kingdom that we live in and why it's different from the kingdom of God. So we use the analogy of a steering wheel, and I'll, I'll just be real honest, like, it's, it's nice to get, you know, positive feedback on a sermon but I got more negative feedback on this illustration than anything I've gotten in a long time. Emails, text messages, comments from people. And very rarely does anyone, not just when I'm preaching, anyone in life ever say to me, oh, Chad, you didn't say enough. I'm known for saying too much. Anybody else? For talking too long. And I had multiple people say to me, Pastor, I'm very disappointed in you. Because you sat up there that whole time and never made a Jesus take the wheel joke. And and, and, uh, so I I need to repent and ask your forgiveness here publicly today. And, And the analogy that we used was this. In the United States of America, our kingdom, if you will, when we drive, we sit on the left hand side, but we drive on the, anybody? Right hand side of the road. But if you go to a different kingdom, let's call it the United Kingdom, They drive differently there, don't they? They sit on the right-hand side, but they drive on the left-hand side of the road. So in this kingdom, right is right. In their kingdom, they drive on the left, and that is wrong. Praise God. There you go. And we use the analogy that we live in two different kingdoms because we actually live in this kingdom that we see. We live in the here and the now. But what really matters is the kingdom of God which is a season and a kingdom that that we can't necessarily see. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and Jesus came teaching the kingdom to these crowds, when he goes up on the mountainside to teach them, we'll talk about that in a moment, what he's saying to them is, let me tell you how we live in my kingdom. Because in my kingdom, this is how we do things. Now, the tricky part, the hard part, 
is that even though this is the kingdom we belong to, Scripture says we are citizens of heaven, we know that Jesus has changed our lives, we're going to read the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to watch him flip the script, we're going to see how he tells us how we live out his kingdom on this earth. The challenge is that even though we are citizens of this kingdom, physically we're still over here, are we not? So the pressure is to be driven in this way, And so what we need to do is even though we live in this kingdom, we're committed to the principles of this kingdom, and the only way to successfully successfully live in that way is to, help me out here, let Jesus take the wheel. Amen? (laughs) So that's what this whole sermon is all about. It's saying, Jesus, I'm going to live in this kingdom, but according to the rules of your kingdom... So I'm going to let you be the one who drives my life. So Jesus goes up on the mountainside to teach them about his kingdom. What's his kingdom like? Uh, One of the kind of authorities or the leading scholars of the last century on the Sermon on the Mount is a guy named John Stott who has written extensively about the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what he says. He says, the sermon describes what human life and human community look like when they come under the gracious rule of God. And what do they look like? Say this word with me. They look different. He says, Jesus emphasizes in this sermon that his true followers, the citizens of God's kingdom, are to be entirely different from others. They're not to take their cue from the people around them, but from Jesus, and so prove to be genuine children of their heavenly Father. The character of Jesus' followers is to be marked by qualities that are distinct from the world. They are to shine like lights in the prevailing darkness. Their righteous deeds are to exceed the deeds of the religious leaders, while their love is to be greater and their ambition nobler than what is displayed by their unbelieving neighbors. The followers of Jesus are to be different different from both the compromised church and the secular world. The Sermon on the Mount is the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture. This is the life of the kingdom, a fully human life lived out under God's rule. Here's what Stott says. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to tell you how even though you are standing in this kingdom, you live according to the rules of this kingdom, and that kingdom's rules are, anybody, they are different. We're going to live in a way where we let Jesus speak to our lives. So he goes up on a mountainside. I have a, a, a picture that hangs in my office that I'll share with you here in a week or two of a spot that they speculate was pretty close to the spot where Jesus actually taught this. It's to me one of the most beautiful views in all the world. It's up on a mountain that overlooks the Sea of Galilee. And it says that Jesus went up on this mountainside, and what's interesting is it says that he sat down, not because he was tired or because he knew he would teach for a long time. He sat down because in that Jewish culture, when someone was going to teach, when they were about to speak to you with authority, they would sit in a seat of honor. And when you read verse two of uh, Matthew chapter five in the New International Version, which we did a moment ago, kind of buries the lead because you, you miss a phrase that there, that's there. There's a phrase in the Hebrew that it translates as he began to teach. But in a, uh, the English Standard Version, the ESV, Matthew 5, 2, it says, and he opened his mouth and taught them saying. That's not just so you can visualize Jesus' teeth. 
The reason it says that is in the Hebrew culture, to say that someone opened their mouth meant that they were about to teach with authority. So Jesus goes on this mountain, he sits in a place of authority, and he begins to speak to them with authority. And what he's about to say will literally revolutionize humanity. He's going to speak the Sermon on the Mount. We're only gonna look at the first three verses here today, uh, three, four, and five of Matthew chapter five. But these first 12 verses is what we often refer to as the Beatitudes. You ever heard that before, the term Beatitudes? It's nine statements. Each one of them begin with the word blessed. And this blessing, sometimes people will translate it as the idea of happy. Happy are the people who, and happy just doesn't cut it. Because happy is kind of an emotion that changes. Have you ever been happy one moment and sad the other? As a football fan, have you ever been happy one moment and sad the other? Right, have you, ever, have you ever been driving in traffic and been happy one moment and sad the other? Like this, this is just life. That's not what this is talking about. Happiness is fickle. To be blessed is so much more than that. It's a state of existence in relationship with God where even if there are negative emotions, even if there are difficult times, you find a sense of joy, you find a sense of identity, you find a sense of belonging, you find a sense of eternal hope because you know what that's rooted in is not the, the, the emotions or the things that are happening in the moment, but in a much longer view and eternal hope that you have because no matter what's going on around you, you know you can have peace and you know you can have joy and you know you can have confidence because in God, he's gonna give you everything that you need, so you are blessed. So every one of these passages that we're gonna look at over the next couple of weeks will begin with this word, blessed. And let's start here, first three Beatitudes today, Matthew chapter five, verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I'm just gonna, this will bother some of you, but the way I grew up, sometimes I, I don't say blessed, sometimes I say blessed. Anybody else? It just comes out that way sometimes, sorry. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We're gonna take a look at uh, these three verses today. And I suppose if I asked you, well, let me do it. Let me just ask you, is there anybody in the room that wants to be blessed? Just raise your hand. You'd say, God, I want you to bless me. Some of you are grumpy or hungry, but, but most of us, or too cool for school. Like, but I'm gonna say that most of us, if we are really honest, we want God to bless us. That's why you're here, it's why you're listening to this, because deep down inside you want God to bless you. What I wanna show you from these passages is three things that can block the blessing of God in your life. Because we might say we want God to bless us, but then we act in a way that actually blocks that blessing, that keeps him from being able to bless us. So here's the first one, Matthew chapter five, verse three. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's the first thing that can block the blessing of God in our lives. Number one, when you're full of yourself. When you are full of yourself, you can block the blessing of God in your life. Anybody know anybody that's full of themselves? Come on, we're friends here. You can raise your hand. Anybody know someone? You're not looking at the person next to you. Just raise your hand. They don't have to know who you're talking about. Right? You know people like that. And the reality is nobody wants to be around somebody who's full of themselves. And let's be honest. I wonder if it's hard for God to bless people with his blessing when there's no room to receive his blessing because they're already full of themselves. 
So Jesus says, if you want God's blessing, which comes with the kingdom of heaven that he talks about, he says it starts by being poor in spirit. What does he mean by that? Well, to be poor in spirit means that you are dependent on God and not on yourself. To be poor in spirit, you recognize that in and of yourself, you don't have what it takes. And that's kind of tricky Because we live in a culture that's filled with self-help, that's filled with leadership teaching, that's filled with a lot of of good things that tell you, hey, you can do it. Like, I hope you'll grow as a leader. And I hope you'll read and learn how to be good at the things that God has called you to and that you, you will believe that God will equip you. But we live in a culture that says, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. And to be poor in spirit says, I can't do it on my own. I recognize that in myself, I don't have what it takes, so God, I need you. And to be poor in spirit means that you are dependent on God and not on yourself, that you're not arrogant, that you're not self-reliant, that you know that you need him. And too many of us find ourselves in places in our jobs, in our family, maybe even as we look at our past or our history, and we just go, I can do this. We're going to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're going to make it happen. I used to know somebody who used to use the line, he who tooteth not his own horn shall not have his horn tooted. I don't even know if I know what that means. But if you're full of yourself, you leave very little room for God to pour out his blessing in your life. And we become self-reliant in a world, in a kingdom, if you will, who says, you can do it, you can do it. And self-reliance is self-deception. Because when you think doing it is what you have in yourself, you're only fooling yourself. But it's the poor in spirit who are blessed. Sometimes I like to introduce you to some of the passages in scripture that have formed and shaped kind of my life, or maybe a passage you're not familiar with, or sometimes we, we'll look at a passage, and we're going to do this just now, that's a little bit longer. And I, and I know, I remember when I was in Bible college, I always liked it when the guest preachers that would come to our chapels would read longer passages of scripture, because that gave me a chance to rest my eyes before the Lord. Can I get an amen? Don't do that right now. Like, don't, don't check out on me. Don't, don't catch a few minutes of, of sleep while you think I'm not looking. Because I want you to see something here. Philippians chapter two, verse three. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. He's saying, look, don't be full of yourself. <laughs> Instead, this is what he says. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who watch what he says, because Jesus is gonna, he's gonna really take on that that personal poverty. He's gonna take on that, that posture of someone who is poor in spirit. Watch what he does. Who, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, 
being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see what he says here? He says, when Jesus allowed himself to be made in human flesh and literally poor in spirit, in that moment, that's when God exalted him and God blessed what he did. And remember this, this, this plays into your life because he's talking here about in your relationships. He's talking here about in your interaction with each other. There's a good chance that you're not only gonna need to hear this this week, there's a good chance that you might use it before you get out of the parking lot today. Here's how Paul ends it. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. He, he writes that because he's far away from this church that he loves and who he's communicating to. He says, continue to work out your salvation. He says, look, getting to this point where you are not full of yourself, but where you trust in God, it will be work in your life, but continue to do it with fear and trembling for it is, and this is the part I want you to see, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And some of us are frustrated because we feel like we can't be satisfied and we feel like we can't live in the blessing of God and we feel like there's something we're looking for. And look, I want you to be driven. I want you to have dreams. I want you to believe for big things. I want you to trust God to be at work in your life. But what we have to realize is that before God can truly, truly bless us and we can live in his kingdom, we have to get out of this mindset that says I have to do it myself and come over to this one that says blessed are the poor in spirit because I can't do it on my own. God, I need you. I need your help. Chad, how do I know he's going to show up? Like, how do I know that if I trust him in that way, that I let Jesus take the wheel? How do I know he's really got what I need? When Ron and I were first married, like so many of you, you know, have been or maybe even are right now, like, like, things were kind of tough. Like, like, God always provided we were good, but we didn't have a lot extra. Anybody? <laughs> and it was like we had to make decisions about what we would and would not do with money and, you, you know, start having kids and, and uh, you know, God, God provided, but the expenses kept coming. And I can remember every time we would go home to visit our family at that time who all lived in the, the Warren, Ohio area, or when they would kind of come to visit sometimes, I had one uncle who usually just about the time when they were about to leave and head, head back for home or when we were about to leave and head back for Toledo, he would, he would kind of, hey, Chad, come here, come here for a minute. He'd kind of pull me aside for a minute and he'd, he'd give me a handshake. And to the naked eye, it looked like just a normal hand. But if you were on the other side, you saw one of these. Nice uncle. Usually it was, you know, a 20. Sometimes he'd... Slipped me a 50, which was big money back then. Let's be honest. I'm not giving this to you. It's big money for me right now. <laughs> and he would put it in my hand. If he didn't have a chance to do the holy handshake, he'd just kind of slip up and stick it in my hand, you know, when I didn't expect it. And almost without fail, I'd be like, oh, hey, hey, thanks. He'd just look at me and he'd go, that's for the Dairy Queen. <laughs> that was his line. That was his way of saying, I just, I just want to bless you guys. 
I know that there's places in your life where you know you don't have what you need, but I'm just gonna help you. I'm just gonna make sure you've got a little blessing here from time to time. I'm just gonna make sure that when you need something, you'll have it. So this, this is his way of saying it. It's just, this is for the Dairy Queen. And I knew that was from God because, well, God loves soft serve. Can I get an amen? <laughs> and what happens is, so many times in our lives, we grab hold of it. We're going to do it. I've got what it takes. I- I've got to control this situation. I've got to fix it. And when we grab hold of it and our fists are clenched, there's no space for God to slip a little something in our hands for the Dairy Queen, if you know what I mean. When we're full of ourselves, we can block the blessing of God in our lives. God's kingdom comes to those who recognize their need for him. In fact, every other of these beatitudes we're, we're going to see as we move forward build on this foundation. God, I can't do it on my own. And I know that if I want to be blessed, my blessing starts with you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's go to the second beatitude. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4 Jesus goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And I'll just be honest, there's, there's, there's nothing funny or pleasurable about talking about mourning, is there? Except we can probably all relate somewhere. There's probably some place in your life where you have deeply grieved. It's also very likely that for many of us, there's probably somewhere in our lives where we need to deeply grieve, and we haven't. You look back on dreams that haven't been fulfilled, or that job that you lost. I know you might think it's silly to talk about, but that pet that's gone that's left a big hole in your life. And I haven't even talked about loved ones. Grandparents, parents, children, spouses, the list can go on and on of people who we loved and then they're gone and then we grieve. And I can tell you this from my perspective, watching people go through life for a few decades in ministry, and I can also tell you this just based on on science, when we fail to grieve, when we fail to mourn, it messes us up. Like somewhere we've got to deal with those things. I'm so thankful we have a group here at Calvary called Grief Share that helps people to walk through and process those seasons of their lives. And I hear over and over and over again how when folks walk through that process, it helps them to get to a point of healing and, 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 and strength to continue even in the midst of that grief, that, that loss and that mourning. But I don't know that that's what Jesus is talking about here. I don't think he's just talking about it. I think in part he is that you're talking about the idea of when you lose a loved one or when you've lost a dream or a hope or something that's not there anymore. But what he's saying is there's something bigger that's here. And if you want to block the blessing of God in your life, here's number two. You block it when you fail to mourn. You block it when you fail to mourn. But Jesus isn't just talking to them about that the grandma died. He's talking to them about something larger in their culture. He's talking to people who have seen their national dreams and their national hopes squashed over and over again. 
And Matthew is writing to people, and this is important to recognize, Matthew's writing to people who are probably being persecuted for their faith, who are probably about, as Jewish people, to be kicked out of their synagogues for their trust in Jesus. So he's talking to them about things that they've lost, culturally, corporately, individually. And Jesus is saying, you need to take in mind that everything is not okay. Oftentimes people will say, hey, how are you doing? What's your typical response? I'm great. And I'm lying. Anybody? I mean, it's just our tendency. But we want to go, hey, everything's okay. Everything's good. And we want to do it with God, and we want to do it with the culture, and we want to do it spiritually. And Jesus is saying, hey, time out. You block some of the blessing that I want to bring into your life when you fail to mourn. Mourn what, Chad? Well, one, mourn your sin. Sometimes we need to mourn for our own individual sin that we see the cost that it's had in our lives, in the lives of our loved ones, in the choices we've made. We call it repentance sometimes, that we say, I was going in the wrong direction, and it cost me time, it cost me valuable things in my life, and whether it was a long-term sin or one that just happened, maybe one you haven't even committed yet, but you're planning that Jesus says, you need to stop and recognize that that not only wounds your life, but it grieves God. You mourn for your sin. And I also think it's important, Jesus wants you to see it's not just individually, but corporately, that you mourn for the sin of the world. That we live in a world that in so many ways is filled with people who have just said, God, I don't need you. God, I'm gonna do it my way. And we not only mourn for the sin of the world, but we mourn for what has been lost in a broken world. See, the reason that our loved ones passed away is because we live in a broken world. The reason that we have pain and sin and and doubt is because we still live in a world marred by sin. You know that, right? Are you with me? And so we mourn for what has been lost in a broken world. And we have a tendency to want to say, hey, everything's okay, everything's good, everything's fine, when the reality is, it's probably not. Because we live in a world that has been so broken up by a kingdom that truly, if you play by the rules of this kingdom instead of God's kingdom, a kingdom that truly does not care about you. And at the end, a kingdom and an enemy who will take everything he can from you and leave you with as little as possible. Have you heard recently there was a, a French dentist who went to prison? He and his father, his father worked part-time for him. They had a pretty good scam going that when someone would come in to see them, they would sit in the chair and the dentist would take a look and go, oh, this dude's got a cavity. I could fill it. Or I could find a way to convince him that I need to pull eight of his teeth. And then I need to do all this extra work and he'd do all these things, and he would, he would be able to recognize and mark patients that he thought were simple or believed him enough or whatever to take advantage of them, and instead of doing the simple work, he would literally, in some of these cases, mutilate their mouths because he knew that the, the government would pay for the, that person's dental work to be done, and so he was abusing people to scam the government so that he could get rich for himself. And if you think your enemy will do any less to you, you're fooling yourself. 
If you think that if you drive by, if you live by the ideals of this kingdom, it's any different, we're just kidding ourselves. And, and Jesus says, at some point, I know this isn't the most pleasant way to start your October. He didn't say that. I'm saying that. But Jesus says at some point, one of the healthiest things that you can do so that you can find healing is to hear Jesus say to you, you know, everything's not okay. I, mean that, I don't mean this in a, in a joking or a non-complimentary way. I can have a tendency to kind of just go through life oblivious. I'm busy, I don't notice things, and I just, I just kind of keep moving. And I'm thankful that Rhonda has kind of a, a greater sense than I do to recognize when things aren't right. And if there's something that's not working right around the house, she's, she's able to say to me, I don't, I don't think that, something's wrong with the furnace. Right? Now, now the car's making a funny noise. And my response, and I don't always say this, so just know I'm thinking it sometimes. It, my, my response in my brain is, don't tell me that. Because <laughs> I'm going to have to do something about it. And it's probably going to cost me money. And can I just go through life dumb and happy? Can I get an amen? Because I don't want to deal with it. She used, she, used to always, she always used to be able to point out when there was something wrong with our dog. I love my dog. He was my best friend. Many days he was my only friend. Anybody know what I'm talking about? So when she would say, oh, I think Samson's kind of, like, I don't want to know that. But if I don't know that, I can't deal with that. And if I just ignore it, the furnace is going to go out and the car's going to break down on the side of the road and we won't have fixed the thing that if we would look at it and deal with it would help us to be healthier down the line. Does that make sense? So Jesus says, you want comfort in my kingdom? Then sometimes, and, and we won't take the time to read this for yourself. Here's your homework. Read James chapter four. Because James says, if you want things to be right between you and God, you're going to have to grieve and weep and mourn because there are times when you have to say, God, help me deal with what is wrong so you can bless me with what is right. Does that make sense? And when we trust him, he'll bring us hope for future comfort. He'll bring healing to our lives. But sometimes, and watch how these beatitudes build on themselves. We've got to get out of our own way and be poor in spirit enough to say, God, will you, will you help me to see what's not right so you can fix it? Last one, fifth, uh, verse 5, third beatitude we're going to look at. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. There, there's really a lot in common between this one, blessed are the meek, and then the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because both of them have to do with kind of turning down the volume on yourself. Do you get where I'm going with that? But poor in spirit, it, it, it's coming to terms with the fact that I need Jesus more than I need myself. Blessed are the meek has more to do with how you present yourself to other people, how you put yourself out there. They're very similar but poor in spirit has to do with self, whereas this one has more to do with others. And if you want to block the blessing of God, here's the third thing that you probably don't want to do. Number three, when you force your own way, you block the blessing of God. When you've got to force and push and demand, instead of, he talks about being meek. 
Now look again, I'm not, I'm not saying that you're not driven. I'm not saying you don't have goals. I'm not saying you don't have hopes and work hard in your life. Because the reality is meekness is not weakness. It is power under control. And it's when you say, God, I, I'm gonna embrace gentleness in my life. I'm gonna embrace you at work here in my life. It is a positive moral quality of dealing with people in a kind manner with humility and consideration. It's an attitude, it's our conduct, and it's being amazed that God would be at work in your life and that you trust him. And if you wanna inherit the earth, he says it starts by being meek. Jesus literally pulls this, this beatitude, if you will, out of a passage of scripture in the Psalm, Psalm 37, verse 10. It says, a little while, in Psalm 37, 10, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. And this is the deal. In this kingdom, we're gonna come up against people, we're gonna come up against challenges, we're gonna come up against struggles, but the psalmist says, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. Look, if you're looking for peace, or if you're looking for prosperity, which is a bit of a challenge, because you're probably quick to go, well, Chad, I know a lot of prosperous people who aren't meek. Anybody else? No, but oftentimes their prosperity comes without peace. Isn't that true? And I can guarantee you this, their prosperity probably won't last for the long term. And this verse tells us you cannot force your way to peace. At some point, you have to trust God to bring that in your life, and it comes with meekness. You cannot force your way to peace. You cannot force your way to blessing. It comes when you trust him. I was with a family recently, and we were kind of hanging out, and they have a little guy who's almost three, which he is in that wonderful stage then where he's quick to go, I do it. <laughs> like, hey, let me know I do it. And whatever it is, he, he wants to do it for him. I can do it. And I remember, I, I don't know exactly what was happening. I had my back to them in the moment. I just heard him at the top of his lungs. I can do it. And the mom had that voice of, you will burn the house down. Do you know what I'm talking about? And we get this sense in ourselves sometimes. And we yell it in front of other people. And we shake our fist at God. And we say, I can do it. And we forget that blessing comes when you are poor in spirit. Blessing comes when you're meek enough to say, God, I'll let you work through me and not just do it on my own. God's promised blessings will come to the meek when they trust in him. And this is such a funny little contrast, right? Because in this kingdom, the, the one that you and I see on TV or we watch on the internet or that we're gonna encounter at work tomorrow or that we've, we've been brought up to believe in. In this kingdom, if you talk about anything that's poor, like poverty, even if it's poor in spirit, when you talk about any time when you mourn or you look at what's not okay or any time you pull back in meekness or gentleness instead of asserting yourself, this kingdom will tell you that that's weakness. This kingdom will tell you that that's loss. This kingdom will tell you that that's not who you want to be. It will scorn and scoff at those kinds of people. But Jesus says, you want my blessing? You want my kingdom? Here's who I bless. The poor in spirit who know that they need me. 
and those who mourn who know that it's not okay without me, and those who are meek enough to trust me, that's who I'll bless. That's, that's who I will help. And in a world focused on self, Jesus promises blessing to those who embrace dependence, mourning, and gentleness. And when we do, that's when we find fullness in him. When some of you find yourselves in a place coming in here today, watching or listening to this message, where you're frustrated, where you're wondering where the blessing of God is, where you're wondering why you can't move past this point, or why you don't have peace in your life. And maybe it's because what Jesus is asking for you to do is to stop playing by the rules of this kingdom and start trusting him with that area of your life. Because when we do things according to his kingdom, not only do we find peace and blessing, but his is the only kingdom that'll last. Anybody ever been to an estate sale? I, I, I like to go to estate sales. I like to look at other people's stuff. And oftentimes I feel better about the trashy things that I have no value and I keep when I see how much things other people keep. Anybody? And I like to go, I like to kind of figure out, you know, their lives, piece together their stories. It's kind of, I'm usually wrong, but it's fun, right? There's a lady who went to an estate sale several years ago and she was walking around and she saw this, uh, she saw this bowl. She said, oh, that's different. That's unique. And she kind of picked it up, put it in with her stuff, took it home, paid $3 for it, $3 for the bowl. And it sat in her house for a few years and she just realized this is, this is kind of unique. It's kind of different. I wonder. So she took it somewhere so that she could get it appraised. And when she did, they looked at it and they said, ma'am, you, you don't have just a fine from an estate sale. You have a very rare bowl from a Chinese dynasty of centuries ago. And we really only know of one other bowl like this that's intact, and it's in the British Museum. And so this bowl that you have has incredible value. This $3 bowl is probably worth two to $300,000. So she sent it to one of those fancy places for auction. And as it was being auctioned, there was a four-way bidding war. And in the end, that $3 estate sale bowl went for $2.25 million. There's a lady here in the front row last service. She was like, yes! She was so excited. I was like, is that your bowl? Was that you? It wasn't her. She's just, she's just happy for bowl lady, I guess. It sat on her table, and nobody saw the value of it because they didn't recognize what kingdom it was from. But once they knew the value of the kingdom, it escalated the value of the bowl. And far too many of us live our lives thinking that our value is in this kingdom. And this is what we're gonna pick up over and over and over again through this series when Jesus says, if you wanna be blessed, not just now, but forever, why don't you try things my way? Because in my kingdom, that's where blessing is truly found.
Will you, will you stand with me today? And uh, whether you're in this room or watching or listening to this somewhere, would you just bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment? We're going to go back to that song we sang a few moments ago that says, Oh God, my God, I need you. God, I need you now. Because there's no better moment than right now for you to express your dependence on the Lord. And for some of you, it may be for the very first time that you're saying here today, God, I give you my life. I can't do it on my own anymore. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I need your purpose in my life. God, I give myself to you. Or it may just be that you're walking through a season with your family or in the workplace or in in a church, in your relationship with God, in your health, whatever it might be, where you just need to say, Jesus, I need you. I need your help today. There's no better time than this moment to say to the same God who helped those in Scripture, to say to the same God who helped you in the past, God, I need you today. In fact, if, if, there's, if there's an area in your life that right now you would just say, God, I need your help in my life today, would you just raise your hand right where you are? You know who you are. God, I need your blessing. I need your help. Wow, 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 wow. Hands all over. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, we don't want to miss out on your blessing. And so, Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? God, we need you. Jesus, we need you now. And so, Lord, as we sing this song, we make it our prayer. We put our lives in your hand today. In Jesus' name, amen. You heard your children then. You hear your children now. You are the same God. You are the same God. You answered prayers back then, and you will answer now. You are the same God. You are the same God. You were providing then. You were providing now. You are the same God. You are the same God. You move in power then. God move in power now. 
in my spirit that there's a uh, I don't know if it's somebody in this room or somebody that's watching on screen somewhere but you got a tug of war that's going on inside of you right now because you've you've already committed to you've gotten accustomed to doing things your way on your own trusted in yourself maybe you can even point to the things around you and go look look at what I've done if I, if I take that step and I trust Jesus, what am I going to lose? If I put it in his hands, I'm not going to be in control. How do I know that I'll see his blessing? How do I know what it's going to cost me? How do I know what's going to have to change? Or maybe you do know some of what's going to have to change. And there's a tug of war that's going on inside of you right now. And God is specifically speaking to your life and he's speaking to your heart. And he is saying that he knows. He knows the tension. He knows what you're wrestling with. He knows that if you trust him, that's going to be hard because it means you're not trusting in yourself anymore. But Jesus so clearly promised us that whether we see it immediately in a physical sense or not, whether life gets easier or better or not, that blessing comes when you take that step of faith and you trust him. And there will be peace. And things will be right. And there will be so much more blessing that comes to your life when you choose to do things in his kingdom than if you just keep hanging on to it and trying to do it on your own. And so, Jesus, we thank you for your word, your revolutionary, life-changing word. God, if you need to flip the script in our lives, we give them to you and ask that you would. God, we need you. We trust you. Today, we put our families and our jobs in our relationships, in our dreams, in our health, in our lives in your hands. Lord, help us not to block your blessings in our lives as today we trust in you. Lord, may we not just hear your word, but may we live it. As we go from here, would you go with us? Father, we ask that you'd send us out with your special favor and with your wonderful peace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Thanks for being here. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.